What's this? What's this? It's the jacket. The jacket. The jacket. I took off Rocco De Mayo. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cocksucker had the toughest reputation in Essex County, but he never came back after I got through with him. So how's everybody doing? I'm okay. I'm good. Been better. That's an unacceptable answer. So we're together on Thanksgiving Eve. Everybody, like, reshuffled their lives to be here so we could do this in the name of uh, Tony Soprano. I'm thankful for this podcast. Same. And someone says, how, how are things? And just saying it's okay basically means, like, I got a laundry list of shit, which we obviously can't get into. But if there's anything you guys want to talk about, I'm here, you know? I survived Vegas. Did you lay any bets? Did you, did you, were you down with the trotters? Yeah, you know, the, the Lakers and their overs didn't happen. Oh. Yeah, they need to score more, and then I'd want some money. Who did you go with? Friends? Family? Uh, a friend of mine. It was his birthday and his family. So everybody's together. I'm glad we're together. We're here today to discuss episode eight of season two, Full Leather Jacket. The air date was March 5th, 2000. It was written by Robin Green and Mitchell Burgess, our favorite couple, directed by Alan Coulter, HBO Synopsis. Although Richie is miffed at Tony for forcing him to build a ramp for the pizza parlor owner, he paralyzed, he decides to make a peace offering. Unhappy with their lowly status as Christopher's lackeys, Sean and Matt a.k.a. the Bevilacqua brothers, decide to pledge their allegiance to Richie through a violent, unexpected act. Title, Full Leather Jacket. Obviously a play on the movie, Full Metal Jacket. Mm. Have you guys seen it? Yeah. Yep. I've never seen it. Really? Isn't that crazy? I don't think you'd like it. Mm, It's really dark. Yeah. It was 19, I love it. 1987. A lot of people do. It's, it was, uh, um, it's on the list, AFI's list of 100 greatest films ever. So anyway, Full Metal Jacket is a 1987 movie written, directed, and produced by Stanley Kubrick, one of his last films. It was based on a book that came out in 1979 called The Short Timers. The name is a reference to metal jacketed bullets as distinguished from hollow point bullets. What kind of bullets do you think Tony's crew uses, I think, hollow point, right? I think, yeah, because... No exit wounds? Yeah, also he... Doesn't someone get uh, put in jail because they found a bullet? I yeah. Remember. But it was, a, it was a hollow... It was a hollow point? Yeah. I don't know much about ammunition, but there's a reason why you would choose one over the other, and I believe it's just as simple as the metal jacketed bullets like can actually go through. Like they can, yeah. As opposed to like lodging in the target. Um, anyway, uh, we see bullets also leading up to Christopher's fallen body. We're going to obviously get into this, but Christopher gets shot in this episode. Some production notes before we jump into the stuff. There was no song at the end of this episode. Usually we get songs at the end of episodes, but instead we got Christopher's ventilator, which is pretty ominous because we obviously don't know what's going to become of Christopher. Curiously, though, there was a song to open the show. Did you either of you catch that? Baker Street, Jerry, Jerry Rafferty. Rafferty. Yeah. Are you a Jerry Rafferty fan? Of course. Love that guy. So silly. I didn't know he was from Scotland. My song is right down the line. <laughs> Do you know that one? Yeah. The guitar riff and the guitar tone on that song really sticks with me. Like it's timeless. This is a weird choice though i thought but i liked it yeah it was a look given that they're eating chinese takeout yeah. and talking about college on the lyrics something about the guy's a rolling stone always wandering away from home and yeah. with happy wanderer on the heels of this mm. i thought there was some nice sort little of connection. segue yeah i see that so 
As we mentioned, I don't know if this was on mic or not, but this was the shortest episode of the series. It clocked in at around 43 minutes. Something came to mind when I read that. I didn't realize it until I, I did watch it when we were watching it. And like, you know, for the fourth time, I was like, it feels a little short. You know, like mm-hmm. I got through it pretty quickly. But when I was thinking about sitting down with you guys today, I thought it could have had something to do with the fact that someone's life was potentially cut short. That's a good. Well, do you know how long the longest episode is? Over 60 or 70 minutes, right? Yeah, that's a big... Big jump. That's a lot of freedom for someone to have, I guess, on HBO. Yeah. That, that's why it's, it's not TV, it's HBO. Yeah. yeah. I wonder why they made it short. It was, it was all it needed to be. There didn't need to be anything else. There's a couple of scenes where I'll argue with you guys that I, I didn't agree. think needed to be there. Or I agree. Could have been different, but let's let's get there. So let's jump into Meadow and college. It's kind of like universal theme number one. Uh, why are Tony and Carmelo so against Berkeley? I took it from the Janice experience, the California, the free spirit, the distance away from the family, and their interpretation of Berkeley in general may have been how they grew up and saw it back how it was. With uh, the counterculture and uh, just molding their sweet little meadow into some hippie rebel. Did you want to go cross country? Were you looking at schools in California? Was that even like on the table? Yeah, UCLA's jazz program, Miami, and I ended up in New York. Plus, do you want to send your daughter to a school where the best basketball player that came out of it was Jason Kidd? Or somewhere like Georgetown where Patrick (laughs) Ewing or Allen Iverson came from? So I like that you did that. Thank you. Thank You're you so welcome. much for thank you so much for taking care of me. Just happy there. we got it out of the way. Yeah. Uh, Jason Kidd is a legend. Uh, a quick stylistic observation: Tony says, "Crack the books," and then it immediately cuts to a knocked out security guard and Chris and the Bevilacqua brothers cracking safes. Thought that was a nice little great edit. Great edit. Jeannie Cusimano is asked to help Meadow get into Georgetown. Georgetown's one of the colleges that Meadow mentions at the dinner table. And I guess that's probably what spawned the idea for Carmela to get serious about this. Is Jeannie still fretting the box? I think she's just, I mean, they're mobsters that live next door. I yeah. think there's kind of just always this nervous tension or something. There's no comfort, though, that yeah. they're, they're, they're your neighbors and we're Italians and we have no reason to be on their bad list. Yeah. It's interesting because also when she talks to her sister, she says, spare me the drama. Like, they're my neighbors. Like, yeah. they're not just, you know. So in that sense, you kind of, she was trying to figure out what's the right thing to do. So I think she's nervous around them, but I don't know if she thinks that they'd ever really hurt her or anything. But I don't know. Maybe not. Thoughts on Carm, thoughts on what Carm did with Meadows' mail? To me, this was probably, like, one of the best things that stood the test of time. Like, a mother getting too involved with her daughter or or child's, like, college applications. And I know parents that have done that before. Do you guys know if your parents opened your mail? My parents definitely opened my mail. They read all my diaries, everything. My mom read stuff in my—she, like, broke into my room and, like, took all my little, like, poetry that I wrote for this girl and, like, called me out on it. But I don't know that she ever opened my mail. But how would I know? How would you Exactly. Yeah, I thought there was maybe something, the letter was not an accepting letter, but it was requiring some information to complete the application. Yeah. And she thought, well, this is a great way to stop that. If I prevent her from submitting this, then she won't get in. And then I think later on in the evening when she went back to it. What made her change her mind? It was the guilt, I thought, of being responsible. Let's say she doesn't get into any other college and she doesn't get into Berkeley because she literally threw her daughter's career in the trash. So it was... The guilt of that, I thought. That's yeah. more about yeah. Carmela than it was. Meta. I agree. That's what, because there's two moms you see in this episode. You see Adriana's mom and Carmela. Like, do they know, do they do what, know what's best or what's right? 
And, like, I think you're right where Carmela isn't necessarily doing—she is doing what's right, but it's more because she's afraid she might not get into Georgetown. So Berkeley would be her only option. Yeah. And Adriana's mom, of course, was like, your door isn't shut to me. Like, you shouldn't marry him. Symbolism on when she approached Jeannie in the garden, and she's like, oh, you're putting the roses to bed. Yeah. Uh, and that uh, made me think of the play on the idiom of a bed of roses— which is a, a pleasant or easy situation, an untroubled existence. And here's Carmela making it difficult for her. Implicitly threatening her, but she hasn't implicitly threatened her yet. So Carmela was being a good Catholic by pulling it out. She was repenting, right? It was not only for the daughter, but there was also, I feel like there was like a, there was like a, like a higher power calling for her to like undo what she had done. Um, <sighs> Maybe. I think she also just wouldn't want Meadow not to get into a college. Yeah. And if you're a good Catholic, you want your daughter going to Georgetown. Yeah. So. Was Carmela knowingly gangster with Jeannie's sister Joan? To me, this is one of the most gangster moments of the entire series. Like, more than some of the men, in my opinion. It's so badass. She's holding a ricotta pie, too, while she does it. With pineapple? Yeah. Are those good, by the way? Mm-hmm. Is that, like, a thing? Some, I love, there's uh, the meeting when Richie's outside Satriel's. They have pignolis, which are an Italian dessert cookie that are amazing. Those mm-hmm. are my favorite Italian cookies, pignolis. But some of the, like, I'm not a big cannoli person. I don't like a cream custardy ricotta. I like ricotta in my pasta, but not in my desserts. It's just too rich. I'm not a dessert guy. Really? Nothing? Mm. But yes, she was badass gangster. A note about the twin scene. So as you guys know, I sat down with uh, Sandra Santiago and talked about this episode and her other amazing work. And she gave some insights as to how this scene was shot and came about. So stay tuned for the conversation on that. It's interesting. Like, I didn't realize it. There is there is a double. There were certain lines that she couldn't cross to, like, make it look. Because you see the two of them at one point, And she kind of gets into all of that. You can tell if you look at the hair style yeah. a little bit. That's the only give I could sense. There's a cool story she tells about literally the body double going method. Um, and it was just, it, it was very meta because she was playing a character who was playing herself. And then there was an extra and fun stuff. Do you think it costs more to set something up like that versus just casting an additional person? Well, I was going to ask that, but then she went kind of like on a tangent. I was going to ask her, like, did you get double the pay? Because you basically played two You basically played yeah. two actresses. Another example of Carmela's gangster bars, when she says to Jeannie, do you have a copy? The way that she asked for the copy of the letter, and then she gets up to give Jeannie a hug, and Jeannie recoils. That was some powerful shit. Like, yeah. like, a, like a, I'm gonna about to get enveloped by a snake or something. Even when did Carmela know, or she? That's what I'm, she I knows exactly yeah. what she's. She doing. knows what she's oh, doing. Oh yeah, right? it's. I mean, even she's flexing t- totally. Even the way she talks on the phone in front of Meadow, she can't. Why not? Yeah. She cha- like that. She became different. Oh my god! Yeah. I was like, wow! I never want to cross Carmela. When she tells Joan, the sister, who she says, "I'm an officer of the court," a and lawyer. She goes, a lawyer. Yeah. Oof. Like, wow, Carmela, man! Like, literally, you know the Arnold Schwarzenegger, whatever that competition was called. She was doing this and she was doing that right in front of Joan, and I was like, <laughs> "Whoa! We're, we, you've never, we've never seen her like that before." All of a sudden, episode eight, season two, she comes out with the guns. But it's, ex- she, I know, and she's like extorting her with the pie. Like, yeah. it's hilarious. Maybe it's, it was the pie. Maybe there was no intimidation at all, but she ate that pie and was like, damn. Yeah. All right. Or the ice cap essay was that. No, it was the it was the letters of reference that just blew, knocked her socks off. And poor Dominican guy with the 
5.2 average. Gosh. Cerebral palsy. It was cool that Jeannie's sister, I forget the lawyer's name, was giving a little sass back. Joan. Yeah, Joan. Yeah. She was a little sassy, which was nice to see, where she was like, Fielder, is it? Yeah. I love that. I love that. That was great. Yeah. Oh, that was a play. Like, that was, that was rude. I don't like, I don't care mean... about your daughter. Yeah. yeah. Enough to remember that her was name. Great, great stuff. I thought that was a great scene. I thought, again, look, Sandra Santiago is a guest on the podcast, but I'm not saying this because she was a guest on the podcast. She did a really good job. Yeah. And um, she's a good actress. She held her own in that in that exchange. And it was very powerful, uh, the, the fielder thing, like you guys said. And then also at the end when she kind of was like, turns her head away and kind of acquiesces. The other thing that we need to mention is when Jeannie calls Carmela to talk on the phone, like you said, Jeannie was great. The way she was like pacing around her kitchen. And she was almost ducking behind the island. Yeah. yeah. And then, oh, gotta go. Bye. Yeah. It's great, great stuff. I I would have believed that she had an actual twin sister based on how her performance was. Solid. Yeah. Rock solid. Um, and again, there's more to that story. So tune in to the conversation with Sandra Santiago. Let's move to the Chris, Sean, Matt storyline. A couple of things here that I want to just kind of toss out there. Puss was a cat burglar until he stepped up for Johnny Soprano during the unrest of 83, okay? First of all, let's define cat burglar, okay? I actually looked it up because it's like WTF. It's a thief who enters a building by climbing to an upper story. They are particularly stealthy and are able to gain undetected entry through use of agility, to which I thought, hashtag, bruh, yeah, I had the same exact notes. It was like, maybe Pussy was smaller in the 80s? I don't know. Yeah, so we're going to... And John has a really cool Netflix series that we're going to talk about later, and we're going we're gonna <laughs> to cast a young Pussy. Hopefully you picked an agile one. Um, a prescient line for what would ultimately take place in this episode, I never caught it. I never thought about it until this podcast. Sean says... Back then when you did something, you got recognized kind of sets the stage for this whole episode, right? I also just don't really get the whole safe thing. Like, is there really that much money in a stocking store? And then we cut to another. They're not in the same store again. Like, they're just cracking safes this week. Well, I is that do like they a common... say that it's a stocking store specifically? But there's stockings because everywhere. Because I think it's a uh, women's department store. Because I, I'll allude to later when we talk about the money that Chris uses for the engagement ring. And I don't think you're getting the amount of money that he spent on that ring just as a share stock, just from a stock store. store. Yeah. I, I'm thinking it was like a, a Robinson's May type of place that just had a little bit of everything. Jewelry, stockings. Maybe, yeah, I don't know. Fix excited. Funny you should ask. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. So I had a note. Why are they robbing a stocking outfit? Yeah. Is there any more to it than why not? Right? That's the obvious answer. Why not? They're criminals. It got me thinking about women's leggings economics. So I looked it up via a Washington Post write-up in 2016. Women's leggings is roughly 12% of their apparel business, which is significant. It's a $100 million business just for Amazon. Is that because of the margins, probably? Are they expensive? No, but they... But you just keep buying them. And you keep tearing and you keep buying more. And yeah, and men love women in stockings and girls' needs. Is that still a thing? I didn't know. Sadly, it is. Hmm. Another thing worth mentioning, and we've talked about this before, you guys, the show does a great job spending a disproportionate amount of time on a character that you least expect 
right before something significant happens to them. So again, I was bothered. It's all very subtle. Even after watching it so many times, you forget that it's building up to this climactic ending between Sean and Christopher. But when you're in the throes of it, you get lost in the moment in the scene. At least I do anyway. So it's all sort of implied that the camera is focusing. And I'll, and I'll mention Ralphie. The camera starts to love Ralphie a lot when stuff happens to Ralphie. Uh, this is a very much a precursor to that. I think that this is part of their model. Yeah, I, I think even the later emphasis on Chris post-coital moment as talking about how he's made the right decision and things are going to change and he's he's hit some arc of like, I made the right decision by walking back into the house and now he's you know, proposing to aid and then all of a sudden his life's turned around. I, I thought the same kind of parallel. Right? Yeah, a lot of Christopher screen time in general lately. Yeah. A lot building up to... I have a quick question. Yeah. What was Chrissy's response when he said, or did, was there no response when the Bebelacqua kid said, you don't get any recognition if you don't do anything anymore? Did he say anything? Sean said that, and Christopher was just making, he was just making conversation. But he did say later on in the second sit-down that, can you imagine working in this place your whole life? Yeah. Night after night, day after day? Because in an earlier episode that we've already covered... Chrissy says, maybe that's why everything's so fucked up, because no one listens to middle management, correct? So Mm -hmm. remember when his friend wanted to do something and rob the truck, and he ended up doing that and getting reprimanded? So it's interesting because we see this, like, succession of people that decide to stick and play by the rules of their team, and then some not. And then later, Ralphie suggests something to someone else we haven't met yet who decides to take things into his own hands, too, and it doesn't turn out well either. Chris says to them, the time comes, you got to step up or find a new career. And he may have made his own bed right there, giving them the like, subconscious he, idea. That's what I'm that saying. Like, did he bait them in a way? It's time to set them up. I also had uh, the quote, uh, Our V-Nut Men is from a movie in 1932 uh, called uh, The Island of the Lost Souls. So it's a movie reference. So, but it was just funny, the, the reference of Lost Souls and these guys just was too, too appropriate. Yeah, interesting. That's a stone... I'm very proud of that one. Good job. Mm. Later, oh, so another another thing, another play on this idea that they keep showing the character disproportionately. The up into club scene when they're smoking out in their in their house before Furio comes in. You know, Gismonti's getting high. It's just another example of the disproportionate screen time and over concentration on his posterior. Which again, it's got to be intentional because he's taken a dump twice and then the camera is like literally looking at it for several seconds. It's sort of, it's, again, if you want to be metaphorical, it's, he's being flushed out of the show. Did you agree with uh, Soprano's autopsy on their correlation between him hitting the bong as a phallic symbol while he was sitting there in boxers with? No, but everything, but bongs have always been, since time immemorial, mm-hmm. have been likened to phallic symbols. It's right. not like, even the way, like, just the way that they're constructed. But I wasn't paying attention to that. I was mostly, that scene for me personally was all about Furio. Yeah. You know? And also, to me, Furio's reference of them, like, sucking each other's dicks was less about, like, their underwear being, like, girly because as we find out, Furio wears tiny little cute underwear too. I think it's more they're just slobs and gross. Like they're just disgusted by them so they probably just suck each other's dicks versus that they're like... Would he have asked for the thousand bucks if they were fully dressed? And where they were like... They were yeah. like he would have asked. He's shake down no matter what. Yeah. That was a weird scene though. It was. That was the scene that it was the just awkward. like... Spend more time 
and certain other places. But it proves your point, though. Yeah. Why that. are we watching? When when the shooting happens, again, I forgot, but when it happened, I was like, oh, that's why Sean Gismonti. This is the Sean Gismonti episode. Well, you know? it's building up and doing this podcast. It was like the Piss Boy reference was something yeah. that I didn't realize would dwell on them so much or uh, also, them sitting in the uh, uh, the Bing and being upset about their situation. and Totally. Yeah. Which you actually segue beautifully. Later, Tony uses Gismonti as a hand towel. Now, Reddit has a whole thread about how since there were no towels in the dispenser, T found a perfect opportunity to dry his hands and send a message to the Bevilacqua brothers. Why does Matt refer to himself? This bothers me for some reason. I don't know why. It's really stupid. But why does he refer to himself as drink water? So Bevilacqua translates I, I know to that. drink it, the water. Right. It literally translates to that. But why does he keep saying that? Like, what? How is that? endearing him to Tony. I think he's trying to give himself a nickname. He calls him T all the time, and he's always like, Tony. So I think he's just trying to give... I mean, that's... Yeah, I went down the road of if everyone did it like that way. Uh, So I was trying to figure out, like, the meaning of other people's last names. So Tony would be Tony High from above, Soprano, or Polly Strong Army, Gutierrez. Well, Silvio multi, Enduring Dante. Multisanti's Many Saints. Yeah. Right. And I think you told me that. That's yeah. where the name Many Saints of Newark comes from. And then Intintola also means something. Actually, it doesn't mean, I forgot. We had it. We actually said it on the air in one of our episodes, but the last names are all very sort of like they have like a kingdom phyla species. But origin. I'm with you. It is strange to have your nickname be the literal translation of your last name. It just bothers me. Like he's. I've, I don't know anybody that would ever do that. Like, you know, especially this is a business setting. He's trying to like, he's trying to get a job from this guy, you know, but anyway, it's stupid. Like I, like I they're nervous. prefaced with, yeah, they're nervous. They're nervous. In a side question, can one of you explain why people call Furio a zip? It's just like, a, it's what you call a Sicilian. It's like an Italian because they usually come in and out, which is funny because Furio is from the north. He's not Sicilian. He's from Naples. Mm-hmm. Is it a silence thing? Like, is it like zip means quiet? Because he's quiet too. Well, that too. It says uh, Sicilian people from Italy, we call them zips because they'd zip in and out. They don't talk very much. They'd only get down to business or take care of someone and then leave on the next plane. And yeah, that was similar to the research I had. It was American mobster in reference to newer immigrant Sicilian Italian mafioso. Yeah. And that's Furio. Is the origin the organized crime in the United States? Like, it's like a, like a five families or word? Yeah. Is that where it comes from? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Uh, Richie has to build a ramp for Beansy. A fucking ramp. You know what? I'm going to just say this again. I mean, time is short and life is short, right, in general. I really, really like Richie. I have never liked him as much as I have in doing this podcast with you guys. Richie's fucking awesome. He's hilarious. And there should be more Richie. You know, there, Redemption for Richie. Yeah. There should be more Richie. Like, gosh. We'll, and we'll talk about it when it, we'll talk about it. Well, let's, let's, let's get to that point. Um, let me set this up. Syl and Polly come to Richie and tell him that he's going to build Beansy a ramp. Richie says he'll build a ramp to their ass. Hey, you're going to build Beansy a ramp. I'll build a ramp up to your ass. Drive a Lionel up in there. What does he mean by that? A model train set. Yeah, a brand. Of- so they're a manufacturer of trains. Is that a precursor to Bacala? Well, does Bacala buy Lionel's? Remember the symbolism of trains. Who are they? Da- who is Richie dating? Also, that's crazy. Yeah, man, trains are just weaving trains, through this. Everything's yeah. Everything's everything's headed somewhere. I love the look on Silvio 
and Pauly's face when David Proval dropped that line because it says, drive a Lionel, and then he kind of like leans in a little bit, and then it shows him from behind, and you kind of see Silvio smiling. They probably had so much fun doing that take because David Proval is like sitting there. He's just drinking his espresso, and he's like, that guy's a shopping guy. Yeah. It was just zinger, zinger, zinger. What's interesting with this is a few episodes ago, we established from Tony directly that Sil and Polly are at the top. With Richie as a captain now, we may have missed that connection, but is he an equal? Because it appears the way they ineffectively delivered this message that to say, I mean, if they were above him, this wouldn't have been an issue. It would have been like, you're building him a ramp. And it wasn't until Richie confirms with Tony that this is his direction that he even made some moves. Richie's old school, man. He thinks he's above them because he was above them when he was in the can. So he probably came out thinking, like, seniority? Yeah. The young executive always, the older kind of, like, middle manager is always trying to, like, you know, it's that whole age-old thing, right? Well, that's what was so interesting because we kind of, we see the... What are the like, what do you guys call them? The Bevilacqua boys? The Bevilacqua brothers. We see them yeah. trying to figure out how to orbit in the mob and where they fall. And then we also see Richie try to assert himself and figure out. And even later he says, like, when one window closes, I got to move on and stuff. But he really can't. Like, he's very old school and so disrespectful. And everybody just can't stand him. Richie visits Beansy in the hospital. Another great scene with the fingers, you know, this nah, just lock god richie um sandra santiago in our conversation mentioned something about the number three to me she said that when she was on set that there was something about david chase liking the number three um and you guys have all alluded to that throughout the series but it's actually a real thing we got some inside baseball okay so it got me scrutinizing everything with that lens now i started with this episode i wish we could go back Beansy's background, there's three towel racks behind him. They're different colors. The buttons on the nurse's shirt that he's talking to, she's got three buttons on her shirt. This is all silly stuff, but just enter- entertaining. Oh, no, you made me go okay. OCD and find the buttons. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 3.30 in the afternoon on the clock behind Beansy, and Naya has previously mentioned the significance of 3 o'clock. I will say now that it appears it's much more than just getting to hear Polly say, tree o'clock in the next episode chrissy will mention the time too and the security guard that you pan into after he's cracked in the head on his patch there's three silhouettes of security guards the um acceptance or the letter from berkeley shows the soprano's address which is 633 how many attempts on tony's life were there there were two that we know of, right? Mm-hmm. We've already seen one, and then there's a second one. I may edit this out depending on how deep we go. Is the third attempt the final scene of the series? Yes. I think so. Podcast uh, over. It was nice <laughs> knowing you guys. No, I'm just kidding. But three, if you look back, it's like contains the beginning, middle, and end. It's the Holy Trinity. That's the, at least oh, like what the number means. back to the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. But the beginning, middle, and end, like... Yeah, it's God's attributes are uh, omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. It's on the third day, God rose. He rose. And David Chase wrote the Sopranos. Mm-hmm. Guess how many carrots Christopher's diamond for eight is? Did he say three? three? Get out of three doubt. Yeah. Did he say three carrots? Now yeah. I want everyone to listen to this episode because right after he says that on the TV in the background, you hear a ding, ding, ding. Jackie Jr. Uh, gets a little crap for being dumb. It's not a character we meet. I don't think I'm spoiling anything. But there's a story about how he almost died 
uh, drowning in three inches of water. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And now that's all I can look at now. Thanks, Vic. Uh, well, thank you, Sandra, for pointing me to it because she heard it on set. She said it is. I always some, thought I was crazy. I was like, I keep yeah. seeing threes everywhere, it's but I swear verified. it's there. Yeah. It's verified. No, I'm glad you you got me thinking about it. And then when she said it, the floodgates opened. I was like, motherfucker, this is like a thing. There has to be some significance that immediately got me thinking about death and attempts on a person's life. Nine lives. Nine is a multiple of three. Speaking of not three, though, <laughs> how many guys did Vito fit in that van. I wrote it down. Hold on. It looked like a magic trick. Rabbits five. out of a hat or something. I got five. Five? No, I, there were more. They were, they were like <laughs> coming out of there like a virus or something. It was like a bad Kia commercial. Yeah. Well, they were a bunch of bozos. They were a bunch of clowns. So I think it was the symbolism of coming out of a clown car. Great line in this whole Richie thing, Richie building a, a ramp, is the, he calls Christopher's nose a natural, I'm using my hands a lot today, Naya, and I was making gestures I too. It. <laughs> it's because of, it's because of Richie. Richie calls, uh, it's like a natural canopy or something. Do you ever notice he's the only motherfucker who can smoke a cigarette in the rain with his hands tied behind his back? That nose is uh, like natural canopy. <laughs> Oh, the kid has his good point. Again, Robin Green and Mitchell Burgess, if they wrote these lines for David Proval, that is some heavenly shit. Yeah. A natural canopy of something with the gestures. Come on. But he made that work. Because like if, well, if an actor it. else, someone yeah. else did that, it could have been really campy. Right. He no, is, he sold it. Yeah. It's because he's looking away in the distance. He's got the guys over his shoulder. It's framing of the shot. It's optics. And there's smoke in the air. Yeah. wouldn't even turn to look at him. He wouldn't yeah. even Such turn. Such a badass. Yeah. And if you can do something for me, let me know. Like that line, I think you used that like way back for another It's one thing. of my favorites. It's one of the best lines. Richie, it was good meeting you. If there's ever anything you can do for me, uh, let me know. He's all he's got. I mean, he's like, you can't even make that up. He goes, I just did. I just did. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, like, R- Richie, like, old come on now. Old school. Max. Old school. I've reached out. I'm not stopping. I'm going to continue to reach out to his agent. I want to talk to him and I want to give him a hug. What great, brilliant, profound acting and lines and zingers. Okay. Chris proposes. Was it a good proposal, Naya? No. It was a no. fucked up proposal, right? Yeah, he pushes her mom around for like a good 10 minutes. Oh, John, when you asked for permission, did you rough up your in-laws? <laughs> is, that, no. is that how it went down in 2018? No, no, it was much smoother. But I, I was already on their good graces. It seemed like he was on the outs. I noticed uh, his mom or her mom lived at uh, the address on the side of the house at one. Yeah. And I, I always wonder if it's just on purpose or if they add these things. But Chris is making the decision to propose to his girlfriend, and it's the one. She's the one. I like you, it. You see that? I like it. And then Liz is the mom's name, three letters. Mm. Threatens to call 911, three numbers. He's going in. He's going in. He's on going in three. deep. You want, to, you want to go there. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> it's, it's officially, I'm, I'm passing the torch on this There's one. There's three of it's us. the John reaches. There's no, also three there's of also us three now. of us. Yeah, we started with four, and now we're down to three. Thoughts on AIDS mom, Liz LaServa. Is that what you expected her to be? Exactly. Yes. Yes. Is she over deliver, under deliver, or net neutral? She's perfect. The house, everything in it. She's an Italian. She's Adriana's mom. She's exactly what you'd expect Adriana's mom to look like. She's pretty hot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would hope that whoever AIDS mom is, based on all the things she's experienced, that she's probably a little protective and not happy with her daughter's choice. She was played by the actress Patty McCormick, who was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for a Broadway play that became a movie that she was in. Which uh, one? She, it was called 
Broadway, I think. Oh, Broadway, yeah. Yeah. She was also, uh, she also played Pat Nixon in the movie in 2008's Frost Nixon. She was uh, Richard Nixon's wife in that movie. Okay, so I'm a huge, one of my favorite things about the show is the way that Adriana says Christopher. Is this her best Christopher ever? It's top three. Watching her, listening to her say Christopher is perhaps one of the most rewatchable things in the show. You can rewind it over again. Oh my God. Three carrots. Like I said, you could bring it in, have it sized or whatever, if it's loose or anything. Christopher! <laughs> Christopher! Like, it's the best. And, and, and I would love to know, the first question I would ask is, was that you? Or did the emphasis come from the direction? Did Chris steal the ring? Yes. Really? It's a $30,000 ring. Is it, though? It's... 10000 a carat? Currently, that- it's like twenty-five to... 28, depending on the quality. When you get into that level, I mean, there was some glass still in hers from the, the window at Zales. Was it a diamond or was it a cubic zirconia? I don't know. I don't know. I didn't love the fact that he just pulled it out. I got you a ring and everything. That really made me mad at him, you know? Like, but that's like, that's, that's, that's enough, you thought. He you think Tony got down on one knee? Yeah. For Carmella? Mm-hmm. Uh, the jacket. Okay, favorite. more Richie. A great line. So what brings you to an English-speaking neighborhood? Fucking winghead came to see me. Bully. Said I gotta build a fucking ramp on Beansy's house. I enjoyed how it took Tony a moment to connect the dots on that. It almost feels like it was written in that he says yeah. Polly because I think it was even a little over the viewer's head at that point if you're watching it for the first time. I love how Junior keeps chiming into the conversation between Richie and Tony also. Why did he chime in awkwardly to let Tony know that it was a terrible accident that the kid had. His facial expression kind of threw me, you guys. Was he being genuine? Was he pandering? Did he have another agenda? Like, there was deliberate camera movement and action and and intention there. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I think it was genuine. It's a strange universe in this world where we've seen and will continue to see people severely beaten or crippled as a result from a bad encounter with one of these characters. And if there's any relation from that person as a friend or a family of this family it's like the action of the beating or whatever is never the issue it's well you're responsible for all the medical things now or like there's this weird i'm gonna break your leg and then i'm gonna drive you to the hospital because that's what a good wise guy does it's it's just weird that they they expect that i thought it was interesting because you know we've seen richie you know, pledges alliance to, to Junior in some regards, and Tony's an issue for both of them. But for some reason, I thought it was strange that he decided to chime in and say that. And a part of me feels like it's kind of an Italian thing where we choose what's a, what's over the line or not. Like, I mean, they kill people. They all are bad people. But for some reason, like, terrible accident that kid had. And, like, we all know who did it. But it's just, like, he's reiterating, like, too far, Richie. Like, I even think that was too far. And I think there's a bit of a power struggle where Junior's subconsciously or even consciously worried if Richie's acting this crazy with, like, a civilian that's in their family. Like, what else is he capable of? So he's just going to reiterate, like, you cross the line in some way without it being too detrimental. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. I feel also, just hearing you guys talk, I came up with an idea that maybe it had something to do with, do you remember when, in the beginning, when we meet Richie, Richie goes to see him and says, whatever you need? Exactly. He's kind of looking at Richie like, you fucking sell out. 
you know, you're pandering to this guy, you know, uh, kind of almost like I better do it too. Terrible thing that happened to that kid. I better play the game Richie's playing, even though he and I had this little side deal going on. Um, well, I think yeah, that's exactly. Junior's like, well, he could do this. You know, he's yeah. going to overstep me. And he's going to, or he's going to throw me under the bus, kind of thing. It also reminded me, or showed me that whole situation that Junior also is old school, but has found a way to still exist with the new like management in a Junior's way. Junior's a survivor. Yeah. yeah. He, he's alive from the old era. Totally. He's still alive. So he's something to be said for survival. He sh- totally. I was like, he's a real mobster. So Richie April, um, in all of his infinite wisdom, introduces us to the Tao. He says, you got to close one door before another one can open. Which got me thinking about what else the Tao has to say. The Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu is what I mean more specifically. I have a couple of things on it that kind of are super profound and kind of relevant to the last episode we did on existentialism. It literally means scripture of the way and morality, Tao Te Ching, which is rich for Richie, who's talking about morality, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The three things about Taoism that kind of like, if you want to summarize it, like on the back of a napkin. How many things? Three things. Just checking. Yeah. Accept your life, follow your breath to find peace, and smile to enable possibility. Beautiful. Yeah. Smile to enable possibility. Do we think he learned this from Janice or in his yoga classes? I think he learned it in the can. Yeah. I think a lot of guys try to wise up in the can. The only thing you have access to is the written word, right? Yeah, that makes um, sense. I was wondering where he might have heard, like, what? what? He, he was clearly You're something right. that he had been totally. gestating on for a while, mm-hmm. and he was waiting for the right time to drop the line, and so he did. And um, I think that's why he has been, here. he was so resistant about the ramp, because it he wanted to be past all that, and to do all that was to bring that back. And maybe there was some guilt out of this guy of what he had done. Good point. Can we talk about the jacket for just a second? Yeah. Is it a ugly jacket or what? Or ugly. Do we like the jacket? I'm not a fan of the jacket at all. I think the intention was the most important part. I have a segue to the future of this show. Um, won't give anything away, but Richie, there's a scene. We're working through the Richie this stuff here. Richie retelling old stories outside Satriel's. Tony leans back and is kind of just like really disinterested in it. And to me, that was a precursor to his classic line, remember when is the lowest form of communication, which is one of my favorite lines in the show. I live by that now. I use it. I use it all the time. Well, and back to this happy wanderer thing, it sounds like uh, Richie's doing really well for the crew. He's a captain now. He's making peace with Tony. He's doing things that he's told. And Tony's still sort of resistant to that. Yeah. I think he's taken aback by free-spirited Richie now, too. He just, I, I don't know why he gets under people's skin. I mean, he's also dating his sister that I'm sure brings up some obnoxious, you know, feelings. But he's just, he, he tries to do the, the right thing sometimes still, and it's just not, and everyone hates him. Even when he sits down, everyone just looks disgusted by him. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, he brings he, over a tripe, he's too. He's taking up space. I mean, you guys are reading my mind today. You guys are segueing me one thing to the next. Don't he, ever bring me tripe. Not Ugh, good? It's intestines. So it literally is only him and Carmelo that enjoy it? This is a thank you for Sunday dinner. Some tripe and tomatoes I made. <gasps> oh we gotta be the only two people who uh, still like a tripe. Oh my God, <laughs> Richie! Thank you. I mean, it's a it's a traditional Italian dish, so I shouldn't say it's disgusting. I thought um, it was like a weird pasta. No. Okay. That scene for me was all about the song "Sting," <laughs> "Fields of Gold." I fucking love that song. Okay. <laughs> 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 it's a great. I remember when I heard this, I was like, "Oh wow, they got Sting in here." So. 
That's off the 10 Summoner's Tales album from 1993, which was shortlisted for a Mercury Prize. Did you say 93? 93. It was shortlisted for a Mercury Prize. It was one of three finalists. It lost to a band called Suede with an album of the same name. Um, It was Sting's fourth solo album, nominated for six Grammys, including Album of the Year, sold over 10 million copies. But to my surprise, Fields of Gold, which is a beautiful song, only reached 23 on the U.S. charts. Other tracks off that album, I don't know how I don't I don't know if you guys are Sting guys. I'm a, I'm all about the Sting. I had a Sting action figure when I was growing up. I did a cover of that song. It's, I'm the biggest Fields Sting. of Gold. I know his entire discography. Do you have like a? Can you send me like a unreleased demo? I can find it. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Love that song. Um, other tracks off the album that were great. Uh, if I ever lose my faith in you, which most people know, was this a Sumner's Tale album? Yeah. Ten, uh, seven days, Ugh. which I love, and then and then shape of my heart. I know shape of my heart. That's Nas sweet. sampled shape of my heart. That's one one of his songs. The message. This is a great album. One of my favorite albums of all time. Cue the music. Amazing career. Amazing artist. He's still killing it. Still looks like a million fucking bucks. I just saw him at the bowl with Peter Gabriel, where they sang each other's songs. Oh, that's it was so cool. Insane. That's so cool. What was Richie thinking when he saw the cleaning lady's husband wearing his jacket? Was he going to go nuclear? I just think he was like, I'm fucked. Okay. Fucked. I think he was really sad that the guy was an engineer and (laughs) wasting his life as a taxi driver. It really (laughs) upset him. Um, Melfi Sessions. Meadow's going to be going away to college next year. Yeah, that's why she needs the car. Leaving the nest. Not those fucking ducks again. Maybe you were preparing her for reality, teaching her to fly. You people are something. Not those fucking ducks again. That's the takeaway line. Why did Tony recoil? They were making some progress. He got all worked up. He said, time's up. What did Melfi hit on with Meadow? I actually think he didn't go backwards. I think this is a moment where I noticed he had some self-awareness of trying to ask why he did what he did. This is like the first time like he had, a, at least for me, where he was like, why did I do this? To, like, why did I, you know, get my, get my daughter this car? Because he like went through it very... In a way, as if he had been talking to a therapist for some reason. For me, at least. You know, he was, like, calm and basically just confused with his actions. I don't know. I liked their conversation. It was really short. Yeah. And maybe where their sessions are longer, we would have had a longer episode. But uh, his progress is painful, and I don't think he liked the answer, especially with the ducks, obviously. And it's his kids. It's empty nest. It's, that's a real thing, even for tough guys. And I thought he was going to cry. It, it looked like he Thinking was going to go about his daughter. Yeah. The ducks, the ducks started. The ducks mm-hmm. get the waterworks going. Where do you think this came from? Do you think he was just thinking about this subconsciously, like guilty? Like, or did he do it and then realize how upset she was and then ask about it? Well, that was... Do you know what I mean? She was... He was asking about thinking that he was rubbing it in her face and, and showing her that this was as a result of his earnings, even though it's a bad thing. Right. Um, and then she said that that was good, that... that what was the line? Yeah, like she's making progress. You're making real progress here. Like, yeah, we're getting we're getting to something. Um, but praising him for doing yeah. that, yeah, which was strange because he felt bad. Yeah, I just wondered why that bothered him so much. Well, is it just because he's a guilty dad, or because I feel like he's got bigger shit to worry about than how Meadow felt because he made a wager? Well, it goes back to that happy wanderer. I hate to yeah. reiterate, but uh, Scatino was this well-known businessman, and under what Tony was explaining, is like, I needed to shut that guy down and show Meadow that I'm actually more put together than this guy, and mm. here's how I did it. I took this guy's car, 
for money that he owed me and I gave it to you. And that makes sense. It was more it was less about Meadow and more about him and how he perceived or he thought Meadow perceived him. Yeah. I get that. That's probably the deepest part of this whole episode is, is yeah. that discussion because moral ambiguities. The first time you hear it, it's like, oh, it's just mentioning the ducks again to tie in season one. But there's there's a lot of stuff. There's meat in that. So before you were on the pod, Nyat, we had this whole thing where like, and I think we talked about it the first episode you were on with us. That is, is Tony a good dad? And uh, oh yeah, I, I, I'm in the camp, and and Justin was in the camp, and John was not. This to for me is representative of a good dad camp because he's the fact that he actually contemplates these decisions with respect to Meadow. I mean, he loves Meadow. I think he loves Meadow more than anything else uh, besides himself. I think I think Meadow is his number one more than Carmela, more than AJ. I think Meadow's his one, and Meadow Meadow really gets him reflecting. Just the way that I the way that I and then the empty nest aspect of it also is kind of bringing that to light. But you th- you think he's a good dad too, right? I Even think he's as good as he out. can be. Yeah. I mean, I agree with both of you. I think he was more wondering why he did it for himself, and it's a byproduct of caring about his daughter. Like, I think he was curious why for, like, for himself, but also, of course, because he felt bad for Meadow and how she felt. Yeah, what he did, giving her her friend's car, was not a good dad move. I'm saying his, like, contemplation of it and, like, like realization that he did something wrong— and was actually saying, Melfi, I did something wrong. Why are you saying I did something mm. right? Is him trying to like flex his good dadness. But uh, to be good, always gives him participation points for trying to be a good exactly. dad. I do so. because, I'm, because I'm, he's a sympathetic figure for me. That's why. But yeah, we talked about this last week. I said it's a total cop out to say, oh, that person's a great father. That person's a great father because it's not. You have to love the mother and you have to do a bunch of other stuff. Uh, Christopher gets shot you guys first time you saw it where were you do you remember the day do you remember the place like, what i remember did you think? i didn't go to school the next day <laughs> do you think I swear he was, to god do you think he was dead yeah did you think he was dead john first time you saw it i didn't think so because of the hospital scene i thought initially uh, when he was shot that he was because yeah. of all the blood so a couple of observations to set the stage we see a bridge right before the assassination attempt on chris and the angle of the shot suggests, suggested to me at least, and I didn't, didn't see that autopsy even touched on this, and he's the one who got me on the bridges, right? The angle of the shot suggests that the bridge is kind of incomplete or cut off, which was interesting to me as it suggests the end of the road, follow the yellow brick road, or it signifies that Sean and Matt essentially are jumping off a cliff, I guess. It depends on your perspective. But strategically speaking, from a storytelling standpoint, I always wondered why they were showing Chris bonding with these two whack jobs. But this scene really drives it all home to me. And the earlier longish scenes that we talked about earlier is all about setting this scene up. It's so simple, but it's so elegant at the same time. I had notes on that bridge, but I had burning the bridge. Oh. Oh. Their friendship is done. Why did they pick Christopher? They know his schedule. I guess I just, I guess you like hurt the people you're closest to, but I just, I was so confused like that they didn't take out someone else. I was amazed that Christopher had the faculty to shoot back and take out Jizz after getting hit three times. Also, I love that he was on the phone saying he has to go check on a ramp. So it's like this damn fucking ramp is like the whole issue. Richie's the problem why he was distracted because he has to go check to see if the ramp is done. Oh, yeah, good catch. Yeah. Good catch. He's now going to go look at a ramp? What the fuck? I was distracted by the bridge. I didn't even listen to what what Christopher was saying on the phone. Yeah, he has to go check on the ramp that hasn't Oh, and Matt goes to Richie, and it looks like Richie was sleeping, but he knew about the news. So that's how he handles the news of uh, Christopher being shot. He's like, I'm going to go take a nap. 
that's great news. Where is Richie? Is that a, it feels like a safe house almost. We, we're introduced to this scene in the very beginning with the cappuccino, and then later when Matthew goes back there. Is that a front? Any thoughts on what that is? Do you think this was the same spot? It's the same spot. I think it's the 100%. same spot. I think it's someone else's like basement where they hang out. But I don't know who. It's like his, it's like his Bing. I feel like it's probably or like his Satriels. Yeah, yeah, with the old school, like his crew of yeah. people the, from the old generation. I think it's a, a vintage '50s '60s antique store, <laughs> and that everything in there is for sale, and that they just hang around and that's so funny. Listen to that timeless music. Final round, most rewatchable scene. I really like Carmela and Jeannie or Joni, either of them. Carmela with the the twins. Yeah, it was solid. I liked the uh, physical. Solid female output. Yeah. Yeah. It was. I liked uh, in that same scene at the vintage store, uh, Richie's use of the objects to express anger, like throwing the glass and throwing the bat down the street. It was, I was worried he was actually going to hit him with that bat in real life. Mine was, my most rewatchable is the Chris getting shot scene. The way it was framed and then the camera the way it follows the bullets and leads you up to the torso. Powerful stuff. And then Beth, Bevel Aqua just like running. I almost feel like there's there should be like a pole there. Like, and he just like runs into it. <laughs> just because he's so like, he's so flim flam. He's also such a child. When his friends get shot, he starts to cry. Like yeah. he's, he's so yeah. help. Like yeah. you really realize where he really falls. Can, um, we, can I talk about my favorite scene? We didn't talk about it Yeah, yeah, it we're going to get there right now. So we're, we did the most rewatchable. Let's do favorite scene. Naya. My favorite scene is at the dinner table where Carmela says she's going to go get the dinner. and Crown Car- roast. Yeah, and Carmela's mother offers to help. And then she says, no, Mom, sit. Janice, sit. And Janice wasn't at all trying to get up to help. I don't know. It's like a little tiny thing, but it just... It's just those little moments that get me every time. Tony's saying, stay. Yeah. No, no, no. No, don't get up, Janice. Stay. Yeah. Because uh, you don't need them, but you need them. I love them. Oh, of course. It's the, it's the, it's what makes the show, makes you feel like you're a part of it. Yeah. You like, know? Little inside jokes. My favorite scene was Richie telling the story about the jacket outside Satrials. I just love Tony's disgust with the whole thing. Um, least favorite scene. I don't like any of the the crack in the safes. I just feel like yeah. it's so weird. Yeah, it was weird. We had but two we know, yeah. two different locations, crack in safes. Like yeah, same. I I was calling it the shittiest scene for literal just reasons. the sound. I, I get it. That was my biggest nitpick. My least favorite scene. I had to come up with something different. Was the Chris proposal? I thought it was too anticlimactic. There are like significant characters it's building up to that. I wished. I just wanted more from that. A little bit. I wanted a little more. They just kind of like jumped a little too much over that storyline and that's like to us as watchers of the show and lovers of Christopher and Adriana you would have thought they would have had a better showing I'm with you but that's also why it's so tragic yeah 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 it's true it just felt hollow it would have been funny to see how he would have thought of how to propose yeah. like how he would have planned what you did you mm-hmm. know? yeah it would have been insincere it would have been so for Christopher to be practicing corny. in the mirror or something yeah. or acting maybe he'd get the acting guy he punched in the face and make it up to him and they could do like some ad lib <laughs> so we're gonna do Netflix last but we're gonna jump ahead to your the name of yours because I have a tie-in for casting what ifs so what was the Netflix name that you sent me today that you had uh, the unrest of 83 yeah so the unrest of 83 which is the line that Christopher says to the Bevilacqua brothers right so that got me so excited because I love that line I loved your meme who's young puss 
from 1983. I got this shit down on lock. I'm going to ask you, young Johnny. I'm asking you, young Tony. I got no one. I'm asking you, young Carmella. And Carmella is the one. Uh, oh, oh, oh. And I got young. I got med school Melfi. Med school Melfi is going to get me moonwalking out of this fucking booth. Okay. Please don't say Helen Hunt on any of them. No, no, no. Okay. okay. I've got no one. You go. I had Oscar Isaac as Ooh, pussy. Ooh, I like that. A slimmer, curly hair. Damn. That's not bad. Jason Momoa. Who's that? Let's look him up. Cal Drogo. Who? Wait. Interesting. For pussy? Yeah. A young pussy. If he was a cat burglar, he's agile. <laughs> Okay. I feel like they just use that word incorrectly. Yeah, that's or true. Or it was like a joke. So I, I'll take Oscar Isaac and I'll raise you Jason Momoa. Okay? Okay. Interesting. Who's an 83... So I don't really have one for Johnny because I don't really know... I don't feel like I know Johnny. But who's a young... Who's a teenage Tony? Do you have, one, do you have a teenage Tony? Because it's 83. He's probably in his late teens, early 20s. Who you got? Fuck. I'm going to blow this thing open. I mean... I want to say Paul Dano, even though he's not Italian whatsoever. <laughs> but I feel like he would do a good job. He would totally do a good job. I know. And, you if know, you Tony got, like, kind of skinny for, some, for, like, of, a minute. Of AJ? Yeah. He would be a great mm-hmm. AJ Soprano. Like, older AJ Soprano. I love Paul Dano. Is it Dano or Dano? I don't know. He ends I in a, Oh, him. it's not Italian? Dano? Let's look. He's in The Sopranos. Like he plays got, AJ's yeah, yeah. good friend. I feel like he's got some Italian. Let's see. Has to. I can't do it. Paul? It's like recasting Jesus I know, or something. I know, I know. Tom Hardy for Teenage Tony. Too handsome. Mm. Teenage Carmella. I can't wait to hear He's this. He's so excited. Alexandra Daddario. Let's look her up. Uh, oh. Young, like a teenage Carmella. High school Carmella. She could work. Her nose is a little small. And then my favorite of all, med school Melfi, <laughs> Allison Brie. Oh, I like that, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did anything age the best or the worst for you guys? Did you guys have anything for that? I thought parents stressing over colleges for the wrong and right reasons aged really well. It's a good one. Could Jennifer Connelly play Dr. Melfi? Jennifer Connelly is like in a league of her own, though. I know. Jennifer she... Connelly, oh, she's fire. Yeah. I like Jennifer Connelly. I like Jennifer Connelly a lot. I think I like Jennifer Connelly more than Alison Brie. Alison Brie could play... Carmella. A young Carmella. Mm-hmm. Okay. I can't look at her the same way after the end of Requiem for a Dream. I know. Biggest nitpick, the jizz bathroom choice. Do you guys have one? Uh, this is the most rewatchable series. This is the shortest episode. I know it was buttoned up well. Like, kudos to the whole thing. This episode was knockout. But in this universe, I'd wish if I had an extra 30 minutes of anyone, I would have been happier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, agreed. Um, we only saw Bobby Bacalar for a second. Yeah, too. Have, like you could have done. You could have done five minutes of Bobby. Favorite quote: Fielder, is it? Okay. Uh, if there's anything you can do for me, let me know. I can't. I'm going to go back to the natural canopy. <laughs> Just the presentation and the delivery of it. Could a Netflix series be spun off on the basis of this episode, and what would it look like? So, John, you mentioned the unrest of '83. Based off of that, I have a spinoff off of your series, which I call Melfi MD, Melfi's Med School Years. All right. Uh, what else you got in terms of Netflix, Naya or John? Growing up, Kuzumano. <laughs> I, I had the taxi cab engineer. Okay. I, I try to go to those really subtle 
what if characters that are never seen. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And turn them in. You gotta you gotta milk that IP for whatever it's worth. I got toughest guy in Essex County, the Rocco DeMeo origin story, which ends with Richie removing ceremoniously removing his jacket. It's the final season. Final Spoiler episode. alert. <laughs> and then Cat Burglar, <laughs> The Life and Rise of Salvatore Bonpincero. <laughs> Let's wrap it up with Last Call. Anybody got anything that we missed? Anything on your mind you want to get off? Uh, I'm not going to take credit for this, but there is discussion on the hit upon Chris. Uh, Jizz, as you so apropoly call him, uh, has problems with the... Seatbelt. He has problems with the seatbelt. And who talked about the dangers of seatbelts? Livia. Yeah. And I, it was, Autopsy articulated this, right? Made that connection? Uh, yes. Yeah. I think he tried, too. If you, if you watch it again, he tried to get out of the car three times. Like three seatbelt jerks. There you go. Triplicates. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that Richie says that uh, Tony looks like Robert Evans, who's a giant Hollywood film producer mm-hmm. of The Godfather. And that jacket makes appearances in some pretty prominent gangster movies. Uh, including... The DeMeo jacket? Yeah. That actual jacket? That same jacket. I've done a a meme that shows it in Carlito's way, where Johnny Depp wears it, where Ray Liotta wears it in Goodfellas. And I want to say there's probably one or two that I'm missing. Did Tom Hanks wear it in Castaway? (laughs) Is that how he survived? Because of the jacket? The the jacket was his life raft? For me, Tony's question and expression at the end of the episode is, I think the expression and statement that many of us had at the series finale. That was what I was thinking when I saw that. This is, it's, we're getting into the, the middle of the meatball here. It's going to get real deep. Um, it's been a lot of fun. We will be back next week to discuss episode nine of season two. Thank you, John. If there's anything you guys can do for me, let me know. Thank you, Naya. Thank you. We'll see you after the holiday. Thank you.